This is James Cooper with K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District with your Extension Crop Report. Deer love soybeans. There is no summer food that they like better than the soft, nutritious leaves of young soybeans. The problem is, is that farmers would prefer not to share. The damage of deer on soybean fields is no small matter either. Many states have calculated that deer cause millions of dollars in damage to crop fields. Some fields in high deer pressure areas can have yield losses as high as 80%. Personally, I have seen fields over 30 acres or more where soybeans never got above ankle high because deer kept them grazed down. Most damage to soybean fields occurs this time of year, when the soybeans are young. Deer can feed on soybean pods, but are less likely to cause much damage to mature soybeans. Deer can also be hard on cornfields this time of year as well. They feed directly on immature tassels and developing ears. So, what can be done about it? Well, that is not such an easy question. Control options include fencing, both electric and non-electric, repellent sprays, noise makers, and population control. None of these methods will result in complete damage reduction, and often more than one control method needs to be combined. Fencing can be ideal if the deer need to be excluded from a smaller area or have restricted movement. As we all know, deer can jump pretty high. A non-electric permanent fence will need to be 7 to 8 feet tall to stop a deer. A permanent fence can also be slanted to improve effectiveness. While deer can jump high, they have a difficult time jumping up and out, making a slanted fence a more difficult obstacle to overcome. Electric fences can also be used, and polywire is more easy to put up and to move. When building an electric fence, it is important to remember that visibility is key. There needs to be at least 15 feet of clearing in front of the fence. Visibility can be increased by wrapping foil tabs onto the fence. Deer are naturally curious and will test the fence frequently. A deer fence also needs to be a higher charge than that of cattle because their little deer feet aren't very good conductors. Another part of electric fence is it better to leave it up and electrified most of the year. Without a constant charge, they will be conditioned to ignore the fence rather than avoid it. Besides fences, spray-on repellents have also been studied for effectiveness. Repellents are often composed of foul smells, rotten eggs or meat, or they can be deterrents like obsidian, the spice, and peppers. A study from Michigan shows that deer repellents' effects were highly variable, and generally the sprays do not significantly improve yields. Other studies have also shown variable results. Part of the problem is, is that repellents need to be frequently applied and can wash off in the rain. Also, if deer pressure is very high and they have nothing else to eat, at some point they will ignore the repellent. Of course, trek population control can help. Does tend to have a range of about a mile square, and it's a good assumption that it's much more important to control doe populations than bucks. If you have any questions about controlling deer in your field crops, please give me a call at 620-724-8233. This has been James Coover with your Extension Crop Report. Next up, we'll have Wendy Powell, Livestock Production Agent for the Wildcat District. Hi, this is Wendy Powell, your Livestock Production Agent with the Wildcat Extension District. In a picturesque world, summer is the time when your livestock enjoy plentiful forage and easy living. But summer also brings hot weather, flies, pink eye, anaplasmosis, and more flies. The problems presented by flies include disease transmission and irritation that can impact performance. Premise flies, like house and stable flies, 
are found around farm buildings and corrals with their sponging and sucking mouth parts instead of biting mouth parts. They spread disease among animals or from manure and feed to animals. Stable flies are fierce spiders and affect animals' legs and bellies. They resemble a housefly, but are only about a quarter inch long. Pasture flies are those that affect cattle out on the range, horn, face, and some stable flies. Horn flies are blood feeders, smaller than a housefly, found mostly on an animal's back, shoulders, and sides. Face flies only feed on the secretions around the eyes, mouth, and muzzle, spreading pink eye infections. Instituting some sort of topical control program like sprays, rubs, or fly tags will decrease populations that spend a lot of time on cows, such as the horn fly or face flies. Stable flies or other biting flies don't spend much time on an animal, so you'll need to implement environmental controls too, not just topical treatments. One of the best ways to eliminate stable flies is to remove sources of organic matter that create breeding grounds. Cleaning areas where cattle were fed during the winter and drying down manure by spreading will help reduce fly populations. This is also the time of year when pink eye problems are peaking. This is due to the numerous face flies taking advantage of the declining colostral immunity coupled with developing immune systems. Add in taller forage that irritates eyes with pollen and pokey stems, and you have a recipe for eye problems. To beef up immune systems, administer a booster dose of pink eye vaccine and provide calves with fly control. Many of the control methods for cows, like fly tags or rubs, may not reach the calf. The increased biting fly population can also spread anaplasmosis. Although horn flies can be responsible, the bigger concerns are stable flies and ticks. If you're in an endemic area, consider having a conversation with your vet about using chlorotetracycline, CTC, to protect your herd. A successful fly control program requires proper identification of the pests, determining the best control method, and following label directions on the product to get optimum control and decrease the chance of resistance. Give me a call for help with products available for control of insect pests of livestock at the Labette County Extension Office, 620-784-5337. Thanks, Wendy. And now, here's David Scrantz, Natural Resource and Diversified Ag Agent, with her report. This is David Scrantz, one of the Agriculture and Natural Resource Agents from the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District of Crawford, Lippitt, Montgomery, and Wilson Counties, with your K-State Research and Extension report. Moles are small mammals that spend most of their lives in underground burrows. They are similar in appearance and size to shrews and meadow mice and may occupy the same habitat. They are seldom seen by humans and when seen they are frequently mistaken for mice or shrews. Only one species, the eastern mole, lives in Kansas. The most conspicuous features of the mole are the greatly enlarged paddle-like forefeet and prominent toenails which enable the mole to literally swim through the soil. Their legs are strong, their neck is short, 
and their head is elongated. Moles lack external ears and their eyes are so small that at first glance they appear to be missing. A mole's fur is soft and brown to grayish with silver highlights. When brushed, the fur offers no resistance in either direction. This enables the mole to travel either backwards or forward within burrows. Moles may be found in woodlands, grasslands, and lawns. They construct extensive underground passageways, shallow surface tunnels for spring, summer, and fall, and deep, permanent tunnels for winter use. Nest cavities are located underground, connecting with the deep tunnels. Moles have high energy requirements. They actively feed day and night at all times of the year. They feed on mature insects and snail larvae, spiders, small vertebrates, earthworms, and occasionally take small amounts of vegetation. Earthworms and white grubs are their favorite foods. Moles prefer loose, sandy loam soils and avoid heavy, dry clay soils. Mole activity in lawns or fields usually shows up as ridges of upheaved soil created where the runways were constructed as the animals moved about foraging food. Some of these tunnels are used as travel lanes and may be abandoned immediately after being dug. Mounds of soil called mole hills may be brought to the surface of the ground as moles dig deep permanent tunnels and nest cavities. Moles in the natural environment cause little damage. They are seldom noticed until their tunneling activity becomes apparent in lawns, gardens, golf courses, pastures, or other grass and turf areas. The upheaved ridges of mole tunnels make lawn mowing difficult. Since the roots are disturbed, grass may turn brown and unsightly. Moles rarely eat flower buds, ornamental, or other vegetative material. While tunneling, but plants may be physically disturbed as moles tunnel in search of animal organisms in the soil. Mole activity may indirectly damage vegetation, but their feeding on insects and other soil organisms is beneficial. This has been a Dave Strance with your K-State Research and Extension Report. Thank you, Adavin. And now, here is Jesse Gilmore with his report. With K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District, this is Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's edition of the Hort Report. Two pests of squash are going to be very noticeable here in the coming weeks. These pests can kill off squash plants entirely before you can harvest anything, so scouting is vital to limit their spread. The squash bug is the biggest adversary of gardeners and plants like zucchini, and right about now, you would begin seeing nymphs which have white bodies and pitch black legs. The eggs are reddish brown and grow darker just before hatching. The only life cycle stage where you can adequately control populations with insecticide is immediately after hatching. Once the bugs grow into adults, insecticides are largely ineffective. Spinosad is the preferred insecticide for nymphs because of its relatively low toxicity to other animals and people. Once the squash is harvested, immediate removal of the plant from the garden will minimize the population of nymphs that can successfully grow into adults, making next season's population much lower. The other major pest of squash is squash vine borer. Not seen as often as squash bugs, vine borers are even more destructive, 
killing plants outright. The moth species lays its eggs on the underside of stems, often concentrated at the base of the stem. Once the larvae hatch, they bore into the stem to feed on the interior tissue. Mature larvae then exit the stem and burrow into the soil where they overwinter. If your plant suddenly starts to wilt for no obvious reason, inspect the plants for ooze from the interior of the stem, which indicates that bores are present. Sanitation once the stems start showing symptoms will also keep populations low. Seven should be sprayed as soon as the vines begin to run, and again every seven to ten days to kill off larvae before they have a chance to burrow into your plants. Squash can either be summer squash or winter squash, and they will have slightly different management based on which you're trying to grow. Summer squash is grown to harvest at an immature stage before the skin and seeds have toughened. The most common type of summer squash is zucchini. Winter squash, on the other hand, are harvested once the skin has toughened and include acorn and butternut squashes. Winter squash plants trail much longer than summer squash will, and will need greater spacing in the garden. Space winter squash plants three to four feet apart in the row, and summer squash plants two feet apart. Rows should be six feet apart for winter squash and three feet apart for summer squash. Summer squash should be harvested between six and ten inches long. Winter squash should be harvested once your fingernail can no longer pierce the rind easily. After harvesting winter squash, store them in a dry location at room temperature for two weeks before moving them to a cooler place for long-term storage. This cure process will allow the rinds to toughen and keep longer. Winter squash can be stored anywhere from four to eight months given the right conditions, while summer squash should be eaten within two weeks of harvest. For more information on today's topic, contact your local Extension office. I can be reached at 620-724-8233 or by email at jr637 at ksu.edu. Once again, this has been Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's Hort Report. Thank you, Jesse, and thank you for listening to K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District Ag Team on KGGF 690 Radio.